BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the staggering U.S. death toll from COVID-19 has left hundreds of thousands of families grieving. California alone has now lost nearly 39,000 residents to the virus. The numbers don't show the whole picture either. Multiple losses within families, people waiting weeks to bury or cremate loved ones, communities losing elders and cultural anchors. In this hour, we talk about coping with the grief and trauma of losing loved ones to the coronavirus pandemic. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Processing the deaths of loved ones is difficult and different for everyone, and losing someone to the coronavirus pandemic has made that process harder. In this hour, we explore how, and invite you to join the conversation if you'd like with your thoughts or questions about the experience of losing loved ones to COVID-19. Joining me first is Sam Levin, Los Angeles correspondent for The Guardian, who's been covering the effects of the COVID crisis in Los Angeles and then his grandmother, Debbie, who lived in Long Beach, died of COVID on January 10th. Sam Levin, I'm so sorry. I really want to thank you for being here to talk about such a recent loss. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You posted adorable photos of your grandma on Twitter, and you described her death as both devastating and unfair. Why does it feel unfair? It's been incredibly painful and difficult to process. And, you know, honestly, I think I've been in a bit of shock throughout this experience, but it feels unfair because my grandma did everything right throughout the pandemic. We did everything right throughout the pandemic. We followed all the rules and like so many vulnerable people, you know, our system, our government, our healthcare system failed to protect her. You know, and she she should have been safe and she should have been protected. 
and it's really devastating that so many lives are lost right now that um, should not have been lost. And you know, all of these deaths are preventable, and that is painful for me to process as a reporter. And I know it's painful for every grieving relative suffering through this right now. Yeah, you've said it's hard to not feel angry when you lose someone to COVID. I wonder, does the fact that her death happened in January of 2021 add to that sense of anger? It does. You know, we went through this pandemic doing everything right. I would go to her backyard and we do these socially distant hangouts and lunches where we would be so careful to stay apart and, you know, we wouldn't hug. And she was, you know, living alone and isolated and, um, you know, was doing her best to be as safe as possible throughout the pandemic. And so, it does feel like this should have been under control by now. And, you know, I've been reporting on all the ways that our government has failed different vulnerable people, whether that is, you know, essential workers or the elderly or people in prison. And every group that we've known is vulnerable should have been protected. And, you know, especially nine months into this pandemic. Right. And as a vaccine is being rolled out, how has the pandemic affected your ability to process the loss? You're mentioning that you, you know, sort of almost feel like you're still in shock to some extent. Yeah, I mean, losing someone to COVID is incredibly traumatic and you can't be with your loved one in the hospital and, you know, you can't gather with your family um, after your loved one has passed away. And so I think me and my family have done our absolute best to be there for each other and to celebrate my grandma Debbie's amazing life. Um, but the reality is, is that all the ways that you cope and grieve with horrifying losses are kind of stripped of you during a crisis like this. And it makes it just exponentially harder and really is a sort of trauma on top of trauma for so many people in, in Los Angeles. I, I noticed that you had published a piece just this past weekend about families waiting, I mean, agonizingly long to bury or cremate loved ones because of long waiting lists at funeral homes, or they're just being declined uh, by funeral directors, which, as you reported, is unprecedented. Are you yourself experiencing this challenge to some degree related to your grandma? We are. My family was able to gather, you know, for a Zoom funeral um, to be safe. And, you know, that was a special moment for us to all celebrate her life and, and share space online. But the reality is, is that, you know, all the funeral homes and mortuaries and cemeteries, everything's backed up. There's just a horrific backlog of cases. And so we are waiting to have a graveside service and um, we're just indefinitely waiting. And it's a truly horrible situation for anyone to go through. Um, so it's just unfair and really speaks to how uh, horrific the crisis has become here. Um, no one should have to go through that. And uh, it's, it's quite, quite challenging. What were some of the families telling you, or even the funeral directors telling you that you spoke with during your reporting for that piece? It's an un unprecedented situation for the funeral homes and, and certainly for these families. And what's so tragic about this virus is there are so many families who have suffered multiple losses. So I've interviewed countless people who have lost both their parents or both of their grandparents. And if it's happening right now at the point when the cases are the worst they've ever been in Los Angeles, people are being told that they have to wait potentially months to have a service. 
um, which is really agonizing and kind of difficult to fathom how hard that is for people, especially for folks who it's particularly important to have that ceremony and to do that gathering together in person. And so people are having trouble finding a mortuary that will even take their loved ones. People are calling around stuck on hold for hours unable to get through to a cemetery. Some folks are even unsure where their loved one's bodies are. It's just catastrophic and really, really grim. We're talking with Sam Levin, Los Angeles correspondent for The Guardian US. We're talking about processing grief and trauma of losing loved ones to COVID-19 and how the pandemic and the situation has made that process more difficult. You know, Sam Levin, you were talking about you know, just at the height right now of of deaths and cases and and how much it's affecting the whole system of trying to bury or cremate loved ones. You also wrote about California's decision to lift its stay at home order and how that's drawing backlash from health experts and, and frontline workers. What are their worries right now? I think experts are worried that we're just opening up too soon. Um, we've gone through these sort of cycles of opening and closing, um, and the numbers are finally trending in the right direction, which everyone is thankful for. But the reality is, is the numbers here are exponentially worse than they were, you know, in the peak of the summer time surge um, last year. And so we're still in an incredibly difficult place. Hospitals are still overburdened. And of course, the funeral industry here is, is near collapse. And so I think there's a fear that even the announcement of reopening or easing restrictions will lead people to believe that it's safe and to, to go out and let their guard down and we'll just end up right back where we started. What's it been like for you to be reporting on the things that you are experiencing? Um, you know, like in some ways you are the story too. Yeah, it's been really surreal and kind of hard to process. I, I think that, you know, I always hoped that this would never happen to my family. And certainly we did everything we could to try to avoid this happening to us. And, and we still suffered. And I think it just has made clear to me how horrific this virus is and how prevalent this virus is. I think so many people in LA right now are harmed by this virus in so many different ways, you know, whether it is journalists, essential workers, or people going about their daily lives, and everyone is affected in multiple ways. You know, I've interviewed people who have lost their parents and then found out the next day that a friend lost their loved one. And I think it's it's just a lot for people to process. And certainly I'm I'm going through my own process of of trying to, you know, celebrate my grandma's life and, and cherish the time I had with her while continuing to, to tell these stories and make sure people know what is happening in our community. Well, I'm grateful for your reporting. And I know your grandmother was very supportive of your journalism career. I loved the detail that you shared on Twitter that during your first internship, she'd leave comments on your articles online saying, this new Sam Levin writer is very talented. <laughs> Yeah, she was a really big fan um, uh, in a way that all grandmas would be. But even beyond that, she was actually a real champion of the free press or, you know, her husband who passed away a few years ago, my grandpa was a longtime columnist at the Press Telegram in Long Beach. Um, and she was by his side throughout his whole journalism career and, you know, a partner in his work. And so 
she was really proud of of me being a reporter here in LA um, and me having this this career. And you know, she would just read everything I wrote and um, you know send me these emails just hours after I would publish something at the Guardian, um, praising my work and offering really detailed feedback on it. And <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so sad. I'm not going to get another one of those emails, but I'm absolutely cherishing the ones I have from her because they're truly special. Well, she sounds like a really fascinating person. I mean, I read in the thread that you wrote about her that she was abandoned by her parents at three and was in foster care until she was 16. And for so much of that time, didn't even know she was ethnically Chinese. Um, I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, she had a really incredible childhood. And it's, it's just amazing what she was able to overcome. But you know, she, she was abandoned by her parents. So she really had no family and she would tell us these just amazing stories of growing up raised by nuns. And, you know, she was never celebrating a birthday, never learning to ride a bike or swim. And yeah, she didn't even really understand that she was Chinese or, you know, even met any other Asian Americans when she was a, a young person. And she somehow managed to overcome all of that and, and become an independent adult by age 16 and, you know, went on to build this beautiful family, you know, and a beautiful life for her kids and for my mom, you know, the kind of life that she never had. Um, so she really is leaving behind just a, an incredible legacy here in Long Beach and beyond. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to share with her, about her as we're just about to come up uh, on a break. But yes, it is incredible with the trauma and her experiences, you know, that she is such a loving and, and uh, clearly a person who meant so much to you and <laughs> just the warmest smile when you look at the photos. She really did have the most adorable smile and the most adorable sort of youthful giggle. And I'm, I'm cherishing that, that thought and those memories because that is how I, I want to remember her. And she brought so much joy to, to so many people in my family and the broader community. Well, Sam, thank you for sharing her with us, especially with her death being so recent. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We're talking with Sam Levin, Los Angeles correspondent for The Guardian U.S. We're talking about processing the grief and trauma of losing loved ones to COVID-19. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. How have you been dealing with the loss of a loved one to COVID-19? What are ways you're finding to support each other and take care of yourself in this time of grief. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, and you can email us at forum at kqed.org. A note from listener Richard to Sam, you seem to be a very empathic person. I wonder whether your writing and interviewing so many about this makes it even more difficult. Thanks for all your work in reporting on this issue. It makes a difference. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the overwhelming death toll of COVID-19 in the U.S. and California and how the challenges brought by the pandemic can add to the grief and sadness for those left behind. We're joined now by Brittany Mejia, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Brittany Mejia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
And also with us is Dr. Erica Felix, a licensed psychologist and associate professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Counseling, Clinical, and School Psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Felix, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. And Erica Felix, I, I wanted to start with you. What happens when we are grieving? And how has losing a loved one during a pandemic and from a virus that's so hard to get under control affected that process? Yeah, first, I, I think with Sam's story, like I think you can hear all the emotions that come with that during the pandemic. So I feel like that's just, I appreciate his strength and being able to share that now. And grief is not a one size fits all thing, and especially not in the COVID context. We're going to have a variety of very understandable emotions, such as shock and questioning and like bargaining. We can have feelings of anger at why our loved ones were lost. Um, we can, might go through phases of depression and eventually come out at the other end with acceptance and being able to hold the memories and move forward. Um, but, it, you know, people used to say there were stages, but people move in and out of this in so many different ways that are understandable and common. And depending on somebody's culture and family and how they process emotions, even within families, grief can look very different mm -hmm. amongst family members. Well, Brittany Mejia, I was sorry to learn that your grandfather in Mexico died of COVID and that your uncle died as well. And, you know, the fact that he was in Mexico, was it hard on you and your family that you couldn't travel there because of the pandemic? Hi, yes, um, it was really difficult. I think, um, you know, especially for my mom, she was born in Mexico and was there until she was 14. And so her brother raised her. Um, and so I think it was like very difficult for her, especially to not be able to go back. I think it was concerning, at least for me, because I did have some family members who flew back. And at that point, Mexico hadn't cracked down, I think, or hadn't shut down in the way that we had here. And so that really concerned me, too, just because they were flying there and were going to come back. And I was terrified that maybe they were going to get it um, and, you know, potentially spread it here to family members here. So it it definitely was a really difficult situation because I could understand the desire to want to go back to Mexico and say goodbye and spend and be around family to grieve the loss. Um, but it just felt so dangerous to do it right now. So it was extremely difficult to try and figure out a way to grieve together, but apart. Yes. I mean, it's, it's very true, Brittany, the, the rituals that we, that we do when we're grieving, those had to be disrupted or interrupted in ways because of this pandemic. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think, and even when I was talking to my sister, we were trying to come up with a way that we were going to, you know, remember my uncle, because my uncle passed away first. Um, and it just, it was just so hard to try and figure out how to do that. And even when I was reporting on the campaign, I actually was in Nevada with my mom. And I was glad to be there with her because we did something small to remember my uncle by. You also talked about just concerns that you have about not letting this virus spread among family members because you've already had several family members who have had COVID or have it now? Yes. Yeah, so I, at least 10 people in my family have tested positive for COVID. Um, my, and that's like just on my mom's side. Um, on my dad's side, my aunt was in the ICU um, and now thankfully is in rehab 
um, and out of the ICU. And my uncle actually right now is in the ICU here in um, the Kaiser in Baldwin Park. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's at any time I get a phone call, honestly, from my family, a family member, I honestly worry that it's someone else who has COVID or that something happened, um, you know, to a family member who was in the hospital. Um, it's just been, it's taken such a toll. Yeah. I mean, Erica Felix, just the added anxiety that this pandemic creates. Um, I mean, what effect does that have in terms of coping with, with losses? Yeah, I think what Brittany said really illustrates it. Like we're not able to do all the same rituals. We, when there's grief, we want to come together and support one another. And we are having to find really creative ways. There, the ritual of a funeral or a celebration of life is disrupted. And so, and then there's just, everybody's stretched so thin. Like everybody's trying to cope with just all the stressors that the pandemic causes and they want to be there for their loved ones and friends who have lost someone. But I think everybody's feeling so stretched thin that it's just compounding the ability to mourn someone and and move continue to move forward. Yeah, Brittany Mejia, I was um, hearing about the ways that COVID is spreading through families, especially who have multiple generations in a household or are essential workers risking exposure daily. And I understand that you are working on a story about how families are dealing with this. Can you tell us about some of the, the families you're meeting and what, what they've been going through? Yeah, it, and it's it's been so interesting doing the reporting because I feel like in you know the stories I'm telling, I often see my own family um, in these stories. And, you know, the one I'm working on now looks, you know, tells it through a family, you know, a father and his four adult children who lived in a one bedroom and his children all tested positive in October and he had tested negative, uh, but there was just no way, like they didn't know what to do and how to keep him safe. And, you know, there were just so many of them kind of in and out of the house. His grandson also stayed there too. Um, and so he did end up getting COVID and he passed away mm. and it was just so devastating to see his daughters also afterward kind of processing the loss because they told me they felt so much guilt uh, that they felt they just felt guilty that they they couldn't get him out that they couldn't send him somewhere else um it just i mean it was just kind of devastating to see that they were putting that guilt on themselves and feeling in some way that it was their fault when in reality i mean they were you know one one of the daughters worked at food for less um the father was a mechanic the other was a plumber it was all these essential jobs that you know they had to go to to pay this rent and like it was all their combined income that was paying that rent um, and they just didn't have enough to move out on their own. I mean, guilt is something, uh, Erica Felix, that I feel like I hear quite a bit around deaths associated with COVID-19, especially if, you know, people are concerned that they may have put their family member or friend in a situation where they may have gotten it, right? and. I mean, what can feelings of guilt do to the grieving process? Yeah, I mean, I think people are going to jump to that thought and have those feelings, but I certainly don't want people to stay there because a virus is such a formidable foe. And I think in Brittany's reporting, you hear the inequities in housing and work stuff that just made people have to have impossible choices on survival. Um, they need a place to stay. They need 
rent, all that stuff. And so we know that this virus is constantly changing and mutating and viruses transmit to people all the time. Um, and so you could do everything right, like as Sam had said, and somebody could still get it. And so while I, while I understand why guilt is coming up, that's completely understandable. I would want to help somebody move forward from that. How? How do you move forward from that? I know. I know. It's, I think sometimes people have to talk it through and, and come to the conclusion like, yeah, this virus was meant to maim and, and injure and, and do this. And so, yes, like people could only do what they could do and how would they treat if their best friend came to them with this situation, what would they say to their best friend to comfort them? And that's what I would want somebody's inner dialogue to themselves to be. Mm. And it sounds like when you say talk it through that it's really important um, to support people and engage with people, even if they are going through uh, and processing a really difficult loss. Yeah. I mean, we all know that there's no words that can take away such a profound loss, but we, we need our social networks at times like this. And so when you know somebody who's lost someone, you just want to check in. Maybe they want to talk that day. Maybe they don't. Maybe it just feels good to have somebody remember that they're going through this and grieving. And so, um, yeah, you just follow their lead. Just them knowing that you're willing to walk through it with them is important for the healing. We're talking with Erica Felix, a licensed psychologist and associate professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Counseling, Clinical and School Psychology at UC Santa Barbara. Also, Brittany Mejia is with us, a reporter from the Los Angeles Times. And also you, our listeners, if you'd like to share your experiences of losing a loved one or someone you know losing a loved one or ways to support each other in times of grief or any other questions or thoughts that you're having as you listen to this conversation, the number 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Gabriel in San Jose. Hi, Gabriel. Hey, how's it going? Thank you all for having me on. Um, My name is Gabriel Ortiz. Um, I actually work in public health um, for a nonprofit organization. And my grandfather, um, sadly, he he passed from complications of COVID as well. And, and, you know, he's Yaqui Indian and Chicano. And so there's a lot of, um, I know there's a psychologist on, but there's a lot of, you know, historical trauma you know, that we had with our grandfather. And unfortunately, you know, he was a United States Marine Corps and an Air Force um, aerial mechanic. And um, the, you know, the home that he was in, unfortunately, these homes, you know, they're accessible of, you know, disease and viruses. And so I think that's also an issue with COVID because we weren't able to see him at the end. And that was the really challenging thing for my father, mainly. Um, here his father is, you know, who, who did his best in life, and we weren't able, able to be by our grandfather's side at the end. And so there's a lot of factors going on, um, you know, with just the, the care system in America. And I, I think that's one that it's sad to, to know that a United States um, Marine Corps and Air Force veteran had such really just poor care at the end of his life um, mm-hmm. after he contributed to this country. And so that's a challenge for us as a family. There was a lot of unanswered questions that we had for him. Um, And I'll be honest, you know, my grandfather was, you know, he had his challenges and he wasn't really there for us in in our lives, in all honesty. But at the end of his life, we wanted to be there for him. And so, you know, my family, we had to deal with the whole process of not 
allowing our whole family to grieve him. Like, how do we do that? He was a very popular, you know, um, relative in our family. And a lot of people were hurt that we basically only could have 10 people at his burial services. And so, um, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of share that story is that COVID's affecting the underserved communities, the same communities that's been affecting, you know, been affected in America. And because of the historical discrimination against those same communities, we're still kind of seeing, you know, it's just a, a revamping of these type of situations. Yeah, Gabriel, I, I appreciate you sharing that and bringing that into the conversation and also just thinking about all of these forces that are working together that have compounded some of the issues that, that you have faced. You talked about your dad. Um, how are you right now? Um, you know, I work in public health, so it's hard. We're hearing stories, you know, I'm part of a special project um, for Santa Clara County in which we're trying to help underserved communities through COVID. And so it's a challenge because we're seeing so many people, um, yeah, being affected by this. And some of them can't afford to do some of the things that, you know, these agencies are asking us to do. And so I think that's the challenge. That's heartbreaking for me. So not only it's affecting my personal life, right? Like I have to deal with that, grieving my grandfather, not being able to ask him certain things uh, about certain traditions, right? Or asking him questions about life. But then my ongoing work in community health, right? We're, we're seeing other families being affected by this, you know, people dying. Um, you know, we had a story where a young woman, she was only 15 years old, and her, her mother just passed away of it. Right. And so, you know, trying to process all that as I'm working, as I'm trying to develop myself as a young professional, it's heavy. You know, there's days it's very stressful. Um, Well, I really appreciate you calling in, Gabriel. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity. You know, Brittany Mejia, we've talked a lot on the show about the inequities that have led to communities bearing such a disproportionate burden of deaths. I mean, I was really struck by a a recent LA Times piece that said for every 100,000 people in LA, the Latinx community averages 28 deaths a day, Black Americans 15 deaths a day, Asian Americans 12 deaths a day. In your own reporting, what what differences have you seen in how the pandemic is impacting various communities and, and how that also affects the way they process it? Yeah, I think, you know, before the pandemic, most of the stories I tried to report or I was really interested in reporting was focused around the Latino community just because it is such a sizable population here in California and especially here in L.A. County. Um, And, you know, it's all these inequities that already existed. I feel like the pandemic has just kind of, you know, amplified them like it just, you know, created a worse situation. I mean, you already had people barely scraping by trying to pay rent, living, you know, so many people in a household. Um, because rents were too expensive. You know, the idea of ever buying a house that just did not seem like a dream that they could ever achieve. And now you have the situation where all of those things that were already really hard just became harder. I mean, people were losing their jobs in restaurants, like, um, you know, once everything started to lock down and, you know, other people were just like out of the hospitality industry, you had, you know, maids or hotels like they, that they laid them off. And so you had all these people who were already struggling to pay their rent you know, now without jobs. And it's like, what are you going to do? The rent just keeps adding up. Even if there is a moratorium, eventually, how are you going to end up paying back rent? So it just seemed like in all the conversations I had that a hard situation just became harder. 
Well, Robert Wright, sadly, the unnecessarily high number of United States COVID-19 deaths are due to the ex-president's statements, bad behavior, example, and lack of positive coordinated responsibility. Equally responsible are his Republican enablers. We simply can't talk about this topic without acknowledging this basic reality, pretending otherwise does not help those grieving to cope. You know, Brittany Mejia, I'm thinking about an anecdote that you shared from a woman who was worried that her husband, who couldn't be cremated for weeks, was concerned that her husband would be cold. I don't know if there's more that you want to say to that story, but it really took my breath away just because it it just speaks to the shock, like the difficulty of wrapping your mind around such a sudden loss. Right. Yeah. And that was so striking to me. Actually, um, Dr. Neville, uh, she's worked in the ICU at UCLA. She shared that story with me. And, and I just... In her sharing it, I could just tell how much it overwhelmed her, I think, to hear it um, and just kind of everything she's seeing every day. And, um, you know, I'm actually working on a story along those same lines. And I did interview um, someone who worked in a crematory yesterday who told me they had a nightmare that he was drowning in the cremation boxes because there's just so many. And it just things like that. I think they weigh on me also just hearing them because I'm like, how devastating is this, you know, for families who can't you know, bury their loved ones who can't say goodbye to their loved ones who are waiting weeks on end or being turned away. Um, you know, and that when Dr. Neville told me about that woman and her worried about, you know, her loved one being cold, it just, it really did bring tears to my eyes. I mean, the shock um, of seeing people die before their time, Dr. Felix, how does that contribute to how hard it is to cope with these losses? Yeah, that compounds it. And before our time can be so many ages, like I even feel when I hear somebody my mom's age, who's 70, that feels before her time. And so definitely, though, there's something added with, um, you know, a child or a young adult or in the prime of their life. But that doesn't also negate that Losing our grandparents, the anchors of our family are profound. All of it is profound in so many different ways. And we have to keep continuing to support each other. And all the ripple effects of all these stressors that Brittany reported and Gabriel highlighted in his call, we're going to be dealing with this for years and years to come. We're talking about processing the grief and trauma of losing loved ones to COVID-19 and how that's made this process harder. We'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about processing the loss of loved ones to COVID-19 and taking stock of the long-term impact. Before this show, I was able to speak with Assemblymember James Ramos, the first member of a California Native American tribe to serve in the state legislature. He lives on the San Manuel Reservation in San Bernardino County. And Assemblyman Ramos lost a longtime friend of the coronavirus, Chairman Marshall McKay, whom he described as a giant. I asked him why. Chairman Marshall McKay, back when we first started um, uh, Indian gaming, first bingo, um, was a, a, a leader that led the, the first uh, then California Nevada Indian Gaming Association. And um, we all grew together um, as far as the rights to uh, gaming and economic prosper. Um, it was always uh, the vision to use that avenue to open up and to address the issues um, that plague um, California Indian communities uh, in general. And it sounds like he was also very much a preserver of culture to some extent. He co-founded the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. He did. That's where uh, the Native American Heritage Commission uh, plays. Um, We became the ones that uh, worked to preserve um, the cultural um, heritage here in the state of California, California's first people. And when inadvertent discovery of Native American remains are found, it's the Heritage Commission that's notified to make sure that proper reburial takes place. You've described tribal elders as memory banks. Uh, I mean, it it truly is. And that's the impact that that so many don't see. When we lose um, someone in in Indian country um, that has so much knowledge that when we lose them, it's a piece of our history and a piece of our knowledge that goes with them, and then we try to regain that. Um, every time an elder uh, passes away, there's things that aren't written down, things that haven't been recorded, things that haven't um, been taught. And so when we lose that, now we lose a whole piece of, of the sovereignty, of the thread, of the culture. And there's many now that are, are, are singing traditional songs and, and learning uh, culture. But when you look at the impact of COVID and losing so many elders um, in Indian country, then you lose actually a, a voice and, and knowledge on the trial, on the cultures and the uh, customs that um, are many times taught, not so much written down. I know that you live on San Manuel Reservation. I'm wondering... How are people processing these deep cultural losses? And are you concerned about how your community there is grieving? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely is, right? I, I do live on the Samoa Indian Reservation. When you look at the impact of losing someone, um, especially to this pandemic, and then when you start to look at the underlying conditions of why it's, so, why it's hitting the Indian community so severe, uh, underlying conditions of of um, diabetes, high blood pressure, the inadequate um, healthcare system uh, for uh, Native American people, not only in the state of California, but across the nation. You start to see how all that comes um, full circle when you're hit with a pandemic and a virus um, like COVID-19. 
I was really struck by the piece you wrote for Native News Online. You wrote that Native American history is the story of one menacing threat after another to our existence as a people. COVID-19 is the latest since the Spanish flu of 1918 killed thousands of Indian people. Little progress has been made to remedy the disadvantages and prejudice that led to so many Native deaths. What needs to be done to remedy those disadvantages and prejudice? It's true. There's been one... um I guess, if you will, pandemic after another, one with the with the, the beginning, right, with the Spanish incursion and, and the enslavement of Californian people to uh, build the missions and still trying to get that true factual story out into um, uh, the state of California. That starts the healing process, right? So you deal with mental health, the health care, the health care for um, Indian people. With COVID-19, we're seeing um, that now, with a voice and myself being able to sit in the state legislature as the first California ever elected, California Indian ever elected, we're chiming in on a lot of the discussion, COVID distribution plans, how is the, a Native American community um, being uh, part of that vaccine distribution. So just having that voice has started to uh, bring more awareness and advocacy to make sure that that voice is not being lost when we're discussing so much here around the state of California. That was California Assemblyman James Ramos. Still with us is Brittany Mejia, reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and Dr. Erica Felix, a licensed psychologist and associate professor of clinical psychology at UC Santa Barbara, talking about processing the loss of loved ones to COVID-19. And, and Dr. Felix, you know, can you talk about how it affects whole communities when there is such a concentration of loss within them or potentially major cultural anchors who are lost? I mean, we've heard about community trauma. Are these are communities in danger of it when they do experience such a disproportionate level of loss? Yes, for sure. And I think um, that piece just really highlighted that. And um, Fortunately, communities are resilient, but it just highlighted to me in listening to that piece just how much we have to get these stories. What we all only have today, and we want to preserve these cultural memories. And so writing down and preserving these stories and taking advantage of that, and then just also finding ways even in this era of virtual getting together to engage in the cultural norms around mourning and grieving and continuing to do that. And hopefully when restrictions lift up and we can do things and who knows when that will be, because we always keep hearing, oh, the worst is here yet the worst still comes. So I'm not sure when that'll be, but doing those cultural rituals of remembrance and collectively coming together that we are in this together and um, yeah. Well, Abel writes, Sam Levin's comments really resonated with me. My father, Margarito, passed away on December 18th, one of the 400,000 who died because of lack of national leadership on COVID. We just had a service for him this past Saturday. It seemed like an eternity before we could mourn. We had a very small memorial mass for him and had to resort to Facebook so that family members who couldn't travel could at least view the ceremony online. So impersonal, but it brought a bit of solace. That is the same way we said goodbye to dad as well through an iPad. I so regret that I couldn't hold his hand in person or do more to protect him while he was alive. He was so careful and was so excited for the vaccine. 
Let me go to Manisha in Atherton. Hi, Manisha. Hello. Hi. What would you like to share? Um, so both my parents got COVID last year. And uh, my father, who was 86, passed away. And, you know, it was November 10th, so it's been a few months. And most of the time, we're all fine. I feel the most for my mother, who I can't see because she's in India. And uh, I hear her deep sorrow. And I, I want, I, I don't know where to draw the line where we give her the space to grieve, but also ask her to move on and think about, you know, life in the future. Um, I, I don't feel wonderfully equipped to help her with that. And I was just wondering if you have any suggestions. Mm. Manisha, thanks. Uh, Dr. Felix, any suggestions for Manisha about such a difficult, you know, sort of line that she's trying to under figure out? Yes, um, it's going to be day to day, obviously, as she knows. Um, and yeah, like people need a, usually at least a year of just grieving. And so the loss is still relatively recent. And so, and she's going to go through these different stages of it or in whatever order she does at different moments. Um, but, you know, I think it's fair to just let her be where she is in the first year. Um, and then, but also planting seeds of like, okay, let's have a family, when, let's have a family Zoom or a family thing and just keep checking in on her to give her a little hope about like how the family is evolving and, and being involved in family events. But it's a very difficult balancing act and just her being there and checking in and expressing her love is just the best thing she can do. So I would, I would continue to encourage her to do that. Manisha, I uh, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I'm so sorry to hear about your father and Wish your mom the best. Uh, right now, we have some more comments coming in from Carl, who writes, there is also another kind of loss before death, and even for some who don't die. In memory care and dementia wards, the COVID lockdowns have meant a complete loss of everything. Patients don't know why families disappeared. We seem to have lost sight of the fact that life is not just avoiding COVID. As we gain some control of the pandemic, we need to find a better balance to maintain meaning in life. And this listener writes, we had a non-COVID death in the family and we are also unable to mourn. We are producing an online memorial with a video of the scattering of our loved one's ashes, a short service at church for burial at sea, some hymns, a slideshow of her life, and text messages submitted by friends and family. We'll post as a private video and maybe have a reception on Zoom. Let me go to Debbie in Milpitas. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Hi, Debbie. Uh, I was just... Yeah, go right. right ahead. And I was listening to your conversations about grief, and I am a, a volunteer grief facilitator for a local nonprofit called CARA, K-A-R-A, and we provide services for people who are grieving, and it's a wonderful organization. I've volunteered for 13 years, and we provide group and individual counseling for folks who are grieving the death of a loved one. Well, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's free. It's, uh, it's, it's a service that they provide for the community. Well, uh, I'm glad you're bringing in resources. Thanks for sharing that one. And 
Uh, Brittany Mejia, I don't know if you have any thoughts on resources as well. I know that most of you, the reporting you've done is on the Mexican-American community. Are there any specific resources that you've come across? No, I mean, this is, and I wanted to share this earlier, actually. It's been so interesting for me, I think, doing this reporting and dealing with this on a personal level, while hard also, I feel like it's opened me up a little bit more to my sources. I feel like often we don't want to involve ourselves in the story. You know, we don't want to overshare, obviously, or take away from someone's trauma or someone's grief. But I found often, too, that we're all kind of dealing with the same thing. We're all struggling with the same type of thing. And you know, even in this story I did about this family in the one bedroom, I, you know, I was kind of sharing about my situation and kind of the resources I rely on. I know that LA County has, you know, Headspace is providing Headspace for free, um, which I've actually really, it's been a huge help for me. Um, I've been trying to do therapy like weekly. And, you know, these are some of the things I do share because I feel like it is really important to talk about that and address the mental health side of this, um, you know, and, I, I mean, I haven't, I don't know specifically of resources for the Latino community. Um, I actually am interested myself in that. I think my um, therapist is actually Mexican American and it's been a huge help to me that she kind of understands my family dynamic. Um, she kind of understands a little bit about, you know, when I talk to her, she gets it and it makes a huge difference for me to have, you know, a therapist like her. Yeah. Do you feel like there is enough ability, access, or desire to seek mental health resources? Yeah, I mean, that's the struggle. I, I think, you know, if we don't talk about it enough, even within my own family, I know that my parent, like when I, there was a point where, I, you know, I've struggled with anxiety and I've struggled with depression and my parents were very much, you know, I don't think they really wanted to talk about it. And I don't know that it's talked about enough in families. And so that's why I think I try and make it a point to bring it up. I try and make it a point to tweet about it a lot, to share as much as I can on my um, social media, because I do think it's important to open the conversation because I do see that there is some resistance to it. Um, you know, I see it all the time within my own family. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, that's the struggle right now too. It's like resources, it's getting that help. I feel like it, it is a struggle. I think, especially to find, you know, Latino therapists, that's definitely a challenge. We're talking with Brittany Mejia, reporter for the Los Angeles Times, Erica Felix, licensed psychologist and associate professor of clinical psychology at UC Santa Barbara. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Dr. Felix, I don't know if you have anything to add in terms of resources. I was also just curious if there were, you know, resources for community trauma like there are for individual trauma. Yes, I can add a little bit on resources. There's also... Um, the American Psychological Association has like a psychologist finder. There's also the National Latinx Psychological Association. For me, for parents um, with trying to help support children through this pandemic and who may be struggling with a loss, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network is an amazing resource, uh, bilingual, multiple languages, um, and they have resources for parents, teachers, mental health providers. So um, I would love to have more people check that out. And I just appreciate what Brittany was saying about yes. what she does to help reduce the stigma about seeking help because the brain is a part of the body and we need to take care of it as well. There should be no extra issue with that. Yes, Brittany. So appreciate you being so candid. I 
You know, as I listen to our, our listeners, the comments that we got about losses, you know, if, if you're experiencing dementia or, or mourning losses that are not necessarily specifically from the virus. I mean, what it makes me think about, uh, Erica Felix, is just we have had such staggering numbers of deaths. And I wonder what it does. And I don't know if you have any answers on this. But what it does to to a community, a state, a country, um, when so many people are are experiencing, you know, like really overwhelming grief. Yes, when we look at the numbers, like our brain just doesn't even know how to process all of what that means when you see like the death toll on the evening news or just even the people who've survived and might have struggled with long term effects of it. Um, and then we hear these stories and it hits home. And so I think COVID has been a stressor that is unlike any others because it it embeds all possible classes of stressors that we can experience. It's a traumatic event. It changed our life in many ways. There's daily hassles in dealing with it. We're mourning the loss of non-events that we had hoped to have happened. And it's, you know, highlighted systemic stressors that we needed to address. And so we have a lot to do to move forward, but I appreciate that we've started grieving nationally. I appreciate that the day before the inauguration, we had a collective evening of grief and remembrance. And I think that coming together helps as we go through this. Brittany Mejia, one last thing that helped you. Or yeah, I think, you? sorry, yeah, I think um, it's been great. I feel like through my reporting, through this outreach, I guess, being able to process this, you know, altogether, I feel like has been a huge thing for me. I know it's been a real challenge this past year. I think it's still a struggle for me now, kind of dealing with family still in the hospital. Um, but I just feel like everybody has been so supportive and you know, there's been so much outreach and I have felt kind of like that, those ties to people, even though often, you know, the biggest thing is feeling kind of isolated, feeling lonely. Um, I do find kind of like those connections. And when I tell these stories, it, it, it makes a huge difference for me. It like, it just makes me feel better, I think, to be able to kind of highlight these communities, show kind of what people are going through. And it, it, it just helps me. Well, we're so grateful to you for doing it through everything that you're going through. Brittany Mejia, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, Erica Felix, a psychologist and professor of clinical psychology at UC Santa Barbara. Thanks for joining us and thanks to our listeners for sharing their stories and their questions and their thoughts. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you for listening. for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.